Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series, Grace Upon Grace. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. One writer has famously said, it is men, not God, that accounts for four-fifths of the suffering we experience in the world today. It was men who produced whips, prisons, slavery, guns, and bombs. It was men who fight for power rather than for moral reasons. And whether we sleep in our bed and we make up, we, we wake up and have to make it as well, or we experience suffering for unbeknownst reasons to us. Dealing with the problem of suffering is not an easy task. And many people have faced this problem in different ways throughout history, throughout the history of the church, even. It was the ancient Greek philosophers that first really tried to dig down deep and figure out how to deal with suffering at a very deep level. The very fabric of doing philosophy for ancient philosophers was to discover how to deal with pain and suffering and death in our world. The great Stoics approached suffering in at least two ways. And I'm getting this from uh, Tim Keller's book on pain and suffering. It's, it's excellent, I would recommend it to you. Great Stoic philosophers approached suffering in at least two ways. Number one, stemming from mythology, they saw suffering as a, as a turn of fate. It was a chance happening that any of us could experience suffering at any time, and there was nothing that we could do about it. After all, the world is unpredictable. And so we can't control what is going to happen to us. Stoics were taught to let go of both hopes and fears, simply embrace what is. Ultimately, we should just roll with the punches, or as Dory famously said in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming when you attack suffering. The second way they dealt with it was to tap into one of the highest human capabilities of all capabilities, which was the capacity of a human being to reason to rationally think through what happens to them in life. The strong human rationality teaches one to avoid attaching yourself to anything too closely or too tightly. In fact, there's a famous philosopher who has somewhat of a, of a morbid quote, but you will, you'll see it when you read it here. He said, remind yourself that what you love is mortal. What you love is not your own. What harm is there while you are kissing your child to murmur, Softly to yourself, tomorrow you will die. You kind of get, get the point. Don't hold on, don't love anything too much that this world might take away from you. The Stoic approach to suffering is, it's interesting, it's very similar to uh, Eastern religion approaches. Both Hinduism and, and Buddhism would say almost the exact same way, that the way to deal with suffering and pain and loss in your life is, is not to attach yourself to anything that can be lost in this world. But it's, it's not just attachment that they agree on. They actually agree on the, the biblical and the, the core element of Christianity, which is hope. And all of the Eastern religions and, and philosophers would say that hope is a killer. Don't place your hope in anything and expect a result from it. This is one area, of course, where Christianity has so much to offer our world in a difference from Christianity, from every other philosophy and, and Eastern religion that's out there. See, unlike the Greek philosophers, Christians don't believe in, in fate. 
or chance. In fact, we believe that our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases in Psalm 115. And he is providentially in control of all things, whether things happen um, that he wills or that he permits to happen. God is still in control and he is still sovereign. Unlike the Stoics, Christians don't believe simply that that reason is what will help us make sense of life. There are some things in life that reason and rationality can't explain. The gospel of Jesus Christ being one of them, foolishness to the Greeks, but the wisdom of God. Unlike Eastern religions, Christians are not called to hold things too loosely. In fact, we're, ho- we're called to hold on to things, some things in life very tightly. Marriages, relationships, uh, the concept of life in general being a, a strong gift from God, and of course, God's word. The status of our souls and where we're gonna spend eternity. We hold on to the truths and the doctrines of the Christian faith tightly as ever as we hold on to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But perhaps the most distinguishing element of Christianity from all these other systems is this whole idea of hope. Christians believe in a hope that is foundational and firm and it is yet to come in the future. Christians believe that hope distinguishes their life and their reality and their future from everybody else's that would ever walk on the face of the earth. And it's one thing that really attracted early believers to the life of, of the early church and the, and the saints at that time. So what I wanna do this morning is, is continue in our series on grace, and, and we've been talking about how grace distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. In fact, it's kind of like the unreligion. And we all know and we all have heard that grace is this element that saves. Christ's death on the cross for us is a a gracious sacrifice on our behalf, but grace not only saves the believer, brings us into this thing called the Christian life, it also sustains us. And as we'll see in Lamentations chapter three, it can sustain us through suffering in the most difficult of times. I hope you find Lamentations chapter three, verse 16. Uh, Before I start reading, let me just give you a little background on this book. Lamentations is, it's a very short book in the Bible, five chapters only. And they're all, it's made up of five poems or laments. Every single chapter in Lamentations is a separate poem or lament. And in poem one, if you just work your way through it, Jerusalem is, is described as a once dignified woman who has now been abandoned, abused, and even raped in Lamentations chapter one. It's a, it's a grim and a horrible picture of unfaithfulness and the consequences of sin to Israel. Poem number two is Lamentations chapter two. And this describes the the Lord's anger over Israel and how he is so upset and and can't believe how they would be so disobedient and unfaithful to the covenant uh, terms and conditions. Poem number four is, is the final poem. It's a grim aftermath of punishment that they experienced after the Babylonian exile. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians rode into Jerusalem They conquered the city, they destroyed it. And they burned the temple with fire, destroyed all the gates around the city. It was an unforgettable, unthinkable nightmare of total calamity for the people of Israel. Lamentations is designed to be somewhat of a a catharsis, a prayer. There's very little hope, just an acknowledgement that Israel has been unfaithful. There's two laments that occur also in the book of Lamentations. 
chapter five is, is the final lament. It's a community lament, much like you would read about in the book of Psalms that has many of them. But then chapter three is where I wanna land today, and this is the theological center of the entire book. Because in chapter three, it has almost uh, three times as many verses as all the other chapters. It follows a very tight literary structure. There is, there is nothing that compares to the poetry in the book of Lamentations with its structure and its literary genius in, in the rest of the Old Testament. There's probably one other section in Psalm 119 that has such a tight structure. You, you can just watch how the verses flow. Every beginning line starts with the letter of the alphabet. Chapter three, you don't have 22 verses for 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, you've got 66. And so two of the letters are repeated after, after each one to get to those verses. And this is, this is the personal response. Presumably we believe that Jeremiah is the one who writes the book of Lamentations. Um, this is his personal response, but it's also Israel's response as a community to devastation and destruction and to the unthinkable. What's interesting about Lamentations is that there is no attempt anywhere in this entire book where the people ask for restoration from God. Not one. The closest thing you will find in the book of Lamentations is a, a plea and a prayer for the Lord to return to Jerusalem, for his presence to come back to where it once was over their holy city. It's no surprise that uh, American people, we just, we really, modern American people really struggle with suffering in our world. And for most, the best way to deal with pain and suffering is to avoid it at all costs. We are a culture that is obsessed with the whys when it comes to suffering. Why me? Why now? Why this? Why this long? Why this person? Why this time in my life? Why this specific circumstance? There's an underlying truth to lamentations that gives us the reason why behind some of the suffering, and, and there is no ultimate perfect answer to that question. And, but there's a reason why there's no request for restoration in the book. And I think the best way to describe what's going on is, is to just ask this plain and simple question when it comes to suffering. What do you and I deserve from God in this life? What do unbelievers deserve from God? What do believers who continue to sin against God deserve from a perfect, all-holy, just God? Do we deserve Disneyland and dogs licking our face all the time? Do we, do we deserve rose petal and petals and the sun shining on our face? Do we deserve green pastures and meadows and the hills are alive with music? Suffering is uh, something that removes the veil over our broken and shattered lives. C.S. Lewis said this, from our present point of view, it ought to be clear that the real problem is not why some humble, pious, believing people suffer. The real problem is why some do not. Suffering plants the flag of truth within the fortress of our rebel souls. It shatters the illusion that all is well with our lives and that the things that we have in our lives are enough for us 
to deal with whatever comes next, whatever the next day has to offer. God allows us to experience pain and suffering because it's there and there alone that we experience what the Apostle Paul experienced when he pled with the Lord that this thorn in the flesh would leave him. Three times he pled with the Lord, take this away from me, take this away from me. And each time the Lord said to him the same thing, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Lamentations, chapter three. Look at verse 16. Presumably Jeremiah here, speaking of the Lord God, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cover in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what, hap- what happiness is, and so I say my endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Verse 19, remember my affliction in my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Number one this morning and and number one in your outlines. Suffering and grace are memories recalled side by side. Suffering and grace are memories that are best recalled side by side. It was Spurgeon who said this in his commentary on the book of Psalms, Psalm 32. Spurgeon said, God's hand is very heavy when it uplifts, it is awful when it presses down. As Lamentations chapter three begins, what you're seeing is the awful pressing hand of God upon his people and upon his children, and it is an awful hand. We need to realize is that from the very start of chapter three, that all of this, all of the pain, all of the affliction has its source in God. Look down at, at verse one of chapter three. I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. That's the rod of God's wrath. And it gets more grim and, and more desperate from there. Verse four, the imagery is, is God breaking the bones of Israel, or maybe even singular, breaking the bones of Jeremiah. In verse seven, God has chained him and locked him in a small cell where the walls keep getting closer and closer to one another. In verse 10, it describes God as a bear ready to charge his people, Israel and and Jeremiah, or a lion crouching, waiting, predators that tear their prey into pieces, causing terror and fear among them. Verse 16, by the time we get to verse 16, Uh, The lamenter here describes teeth grinding on gravel, and and that might be a form of punishment back from the ancient Near Eastern culture. In Exodus 32, if you remember what happened there, uh, the people of Israel had had built a golden calf and they worshiped it instead of worshiping God alone. Moses comes along, he finds the golden calf that Aaron and the Israelites had fashioned together, and he grinds it up, very tiny little pieces and he puts it in a, in a bunch of water, and he makes the Israelites drink the water with the ground up golden calf in it, drinking to their own destruction, to the own consequences of their sin. Verse 17 also has, has results. 
that depict what happens when we sin against God, my soul. Soul is often used here to describe the entire person. It's a metonymy for their, their entire life, who they are, the life that is actually in them. And then it says, my soul is bereft of peace, which is that rich Hebrew word shalom. Often it means health or well-being. What Jeremiah is saying here is that his, his health is completely gone. His well-being, his, his desire to live in the, the state of his existence with any health whatsoever is completely been annihilated. Then verse 17 says this. It says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Your translations uh, might say something a little bit different there than happiness. The word is, in Hebrew is tov. And you should know that from just where you see it and, and how often it's used in the culture today. Tov in, in Hebrew is goodness, it's briefly described as um, the person forgetting what is good altogether. If the writer wanted to say happiness, he, he sh- probably would have used a different Hebrew word. Makri is, is probably what he would have used there. But he can't use that word for happiness because it's the same Old Testament word that is often translated as blessing. And Israel is experiencing covenant curse instead of the blessing because they have sinned against God. Tov takes us back to Genesis 1, the very beginning before sin ever entered into the world. Tov takes us back to that day in and day out refrain over and over again. There was morning and there was evening on day one, and it was good. There was morning and there was evening on day two, and it was good. On day six, it was very good. And let me just stop here and and describe a a little bit of the dynamic of what's going on because we all know that God is good. And we all know that God is a redeemer. And at the end of all things, he will redeem all things and restore all things for his glory. But the question often lingers in all of our hearts. What should we expect as Christians looking forward to final redemption? What should we expect in our lifetime? If somebody read the story, the pages of our story, that ends redemptively somewhere, how would that story read? Would everything turn out better because we are Christians? And what what does better even mean for a redeemed Christian in this fallen world and in this life? And I'm really tempted to give an easy answer to that question when we all face it in life. I really want to say that, that yes, your stories are going to end well. Everything ends on a happy note, on a good note in our life. But I've come to experience as a pastor and see enough families go through hardship and suffering that I've totally reversed courses on that now. I really don't believe in happy endings anymore, at least as, as the world talks about them and experiences them. I want to call my story good if um, I experience a divorce and and maybe that relationship is restored or I remarry and and God redeems something of that situation. I want to call my story good if if I get a painful diagnosis and, and go through the awful treatments that come along with that and at the end of it I'm cured and made well and everything turns out okay. I want to call my story good if I lose a job and finally get a new one that's, that's better and better for my family. It'd be really nice if, if Christ's redemption guaranteed a good life on this side of heaven. 
But the truth is, is, is it doesn't. One of the worst things that can happen in life, according to Romans 1, is if you and I get what we really want. God will turn us over at times to a debased mind to do things that are ungodly and sinful. There's, there's two reasons why I've, I've, I've abandoned the uh, happily ever after ending for our earthly lives, at least. Number one is this. Over time, Christians, if our lives did end up good, we would mess it up anyway. We're sinful. We're imperfect. And God has to deal with sin in our life. But number two, we would also assume that the world exists for our happiness. That at the end of the day, all that really matters is that a good time was had by everybody. And it doesn't. That's not reality. Jeremiah is a man here who cannot see past his circumstances. He's hopeless. In fact, he gets to a point of hopelessness at the end of verse 18. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. And then you get to verse, verses 19 and 21, and and when we read the tone of those verses, something shifts. Something is completely different in verses 19 through 21 than those verses 16 through 18 at the beginning. Verses 19 through 21, it's very subtle. First, Jeremiah prays. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, that God might remember him. But second, his soul remembers. Did you look down at, at verse 21? This I call to mind and therefore, I have hope. The writer has a memory here. He recalls something. What is it that he remembers that changes everything? He's just gone from hopeless, three verses above, to all of a sudden now he's got all kinds of hope. What happened? What took place between those verses? One commentator put it this way. Both suffering and redemption are part of the poet's experience, and he sets their memories side by side. Whenever you see suffering in the Bible, almost every story, almost every chapter and every verse, it is followed by redemption. Even the darkest pit of sin and destruction with Jesus on the cross and his, his body hanging there, wondering what will happen next, is followed by redemption. It's followed by the resurrection three days later. Oswald Sanders has a, has a great point about this. Every time in the Bible you read suffering, it is followed up by redemption. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. And that is why Christians have hope. And Oswald Sanders put it this way, pain will either come between you and God or it will press you against him. And I want you to listen very carefully, especially kids going back to school. At no time in your life is your theology more important than when you suffer. At no time. God will take everything away from you if that's what it takes for you to come to the realization that everything, everything you have is based on his goodness and his grace. That is the story not only for the non-believer who in brokenness finally calls out to God with nowhere else to go, but also for the believer who often steps back into the sinful pattern of believing that we can save ourselves from our circumstances and our situations that we have no control over. 
Suffering and grace are memories that are best recalled side by side in the Christian life. Number two, number two in your outlines. Grace and mercy are traits that are trusted day by day. Grace and mercy are traits that are trusted day by day. The depth of, uh, of these verses now in, in Lamentations 3 is found in the structure and in the nouns. And I want you to look carefully at your scriptures. Verse 22 in chapter 3. The steadfast Lord love of the Lord never ceases. You might have the kindness of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And if you look at the structure, literally we would read this. The loving kindness of the Lord never ceases, never comes to an end his mercies. And remember those nouns are in the plural. It's not one loving kindness. It's loving kindnesses. It's not one mercy from God. It's mercies, plural, of God. And often you'll find loving kindness and mercy, in the, especially in the Old Testament, you'll find those two terms uh, parallel with one another often in the Bible. But never, in no other place in the Old Testament do you see those two terms in the plural placed next to one another. Loving kindness is, is used when God is the subject it almost always refers to his covenant love for his people Israel. His dedication to keep the covenant, to stay faithful to his people even though they are unfaithful, even though they are sinful, God will be benevolent, God will be gracious, and he will be merciful. That is the heart of loving kindness. But when God is the subject, or whoever else is the subject of this, this noun when it's used in the Old Testament, it also indicates the free aspect of the subject to do what he's about to do. There is no constraint, there's no legal obligation here for God to show loving kindness and mercy to the Israelites. If he's going to show loving kindness, it'll be because of his free will decision to do so that is over and above any law and any consequence for sin that we see in the Old Testament. Most of us find, uh, remember the, the Columbine tragedy that happened in Colorado or the Sandy Hook elementary shootings. You guys are, are familiar with these painful, difficult times that we've experienced in the, in the states here. We didn't hear as much about a shooting in 2007. It came from Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. You know, uh, it's an interesting city when you're, you're named after Nickel Mines right there in Pennsylvania. There was a, there was a shooting in a one-room schoolhouse in 2007 where 10 girls were shot and five of them were actually killed. And we kind of wonder, we see these, um, these examples of suffering and we see people that commit these ungodly, awful acts, and we all ask ourselves, is there any sin so grave that a person might withhold forgiveness and grace? Is there anything that the Israelites could do that was so bad that God would say, that's it, I'm done with them? There is no more grace and there is no more mercy. Can Israel push away God so forcefully that he will never ever bring her back, that he will abandon her and leave her forever in the wilderness? Is there a sin so great that cannot be forgiven? There's one that cannot be, that's the, the sin of unbelief. But for every other sin, the answer to that question is indefinitely all the time every instance, no. There is nothing so bad that it is beyond the grace of God. There is no sin 
so ugly that God cannot redeem it and use it for a good purpose in any person's life. Every single day, God offers a fresh supply of mercy and grace. His mercy and his grace is new every morning, according to Lamentations chapter three. And just that fact makes Jeremiah break forth and shout in praise, great is thy faithfulness. Do you know that the, the song that is most sung in funerals in the last 150 years? Great is thy faithfulness. Do you know the verse that that comes out of? Right here, Lamentations chapter three. It's a funeral dirge. Israel is, is mourning their grief and their loss. They're almost dead to God because of their sin. And yet, Jeremiah expresses great is thy faithfulness. In Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, it was really astonishing. It was an Amish community where those girls were shot. And what happened was, was the Amish people in that community knew something of, of the grace and the forgiveness of God. And they did something that was, made the headlines. Um, they all met with the widow of the person who shot their family members and killed their daughters, extended grace and forgiveness. They took up a collection and an offering for their family. The family was left with three kids and no dad because he killed himself after it was over. Came to their side. They went to the funeral of the, of the dad who was shot. And everybody was, was astonished. How can this community show such grace and mercy and forgiveness? It's because God in the gospel shows us such grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And apart from Christ, it does not really matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of our hearts are murderers. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Everybody stands level at the foot of the cross because everybody is desperately sinful and in desperate need of God's grace. But he lavishes it upon us in the beloved in Christ. Verse 24, interesting phrase here. It says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And, and portion typically has two meanings in the Old Testament. When you read it, the Lord is my portion, you would either think, number one, this is used of, of food, the Lord is, is a portion of my meal I'm about to partake of. Or you would see it in inheritance rights. When the Israelites were given the land of promise, each of the tribes were delegated their portion in the land. This has to do with the inheritance and the gift of God that was the land for the people of Israel. But Lamentations 3.24 uses portion in a completely different manner. It's not talking about food, it's not talking about the land. The writer is not praising God because of the land. He is praising God for God. God is their portion. He is the blessing they experience in salvation. He's not just thankful for the benefits of God, he's thankful for God in his existence in his life, which takes us right, right to Job in Satan's testing of Job. You remember what, what Satan tested God about Job? What he said? Does Job fear the Lord for nothing? Does he serve the Lord and expect nothing out of it? Take away all the benefits. Take away all the blessings that you've given to Job. Take all those things away and let's see if Job stays faithful. What was the, the comment at the end of chapter one? The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Job prays, blessed be the name of the Lord. Suffering and grace are memories 
that are best recalled side by side. Number two, grace and mercy are God's traits that are trusted day by day. In 1996, uh, Elizabeth Elliot wrote a novel. Elizabeth Elliot's the, the widow of the famous deceased Jim Elliot, the missionary that went to Ecuador and his five friends who were killed by the Alca Indians when he tried to reach them for Christ. And she wrote a book um, called No Graven Image. It was a novel, fiction novel. It was a story about a woman who dedicated her life to reaching tribes in a very remote mountainous area that nobody would probably reach, but she wanted to reach them with the gospel, learn and study their language, and give them a copy of the Bible in their language and in their mother tongue. And, and along the way and on this journey, she meets a man named Pedro, and Pedro is critical to her missionary work. Pedro comes along and, and helps her with a dialogue. He knows the dialogues, both at the bigger regions at the base of this mountainous area and where these tribes are, and these dialogues that are in the upper areas that other people just cannot understand and, and they've been lost uh, through the centuries. It just so happens in the story that Pedro gets inflicted with a, a, tor- a terrible wound on his leg. He gets infected. This missionary finds Pedro and, and after going through some translations and working on understanding the language, she, she finds him in this estate and she wants to help him so bad, and, and she fears that he's going to lose his leg. So she gives him a shot of penicillin, hopefully to clear up the infection and take care of it. It just turned out that Pedro was allergic to penicillin. Goes into an anaphylaxis shock. I hope I'm saying that right. David, just quote me if I'm not. And he ends up dying right there. And that's where the novel ends. Uh, Elizabeth Elliott was doing a conference about that novel to future missionaries and pastors, and they all asked her, why would you write this novel about this person's experience? Nobody's gonna be encouraged to go on the mission field and uh, do great and amazing things to reach lost people for Christ and give them a translation of the Bible. And she says she did it for a very specific reason. And she looked and and she talked about, there's a, a phrase right on the end, one of the very last pages of the book and she read it, and it goes something like this. It says, God, if he was merely my accomplice, speaking of the missionary, had betrayed me by the loss of Pedro. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. He had freed me. There was a danger on the mission field that Pedro was an idol in the life of the missionary. That her missionary work was gonna be completely gone because this one person died. And all of a sudden, Pedro became the savior. Pedro became the answer. Pedro became the hope. When Pedro died, God had freed her of that idol and that graven image in her heart. I wanna close with just just a couple points, and this isn't... um, super orderly here, just mainly a few thoughts as we talk about grace and suffering, reading Lamentations, and hopefully we will not come back to the book of Lamentations <laughs> anytime soon. This is, this, is, this is a hard book to read. Lamentations is read annually on the Hebrew calendar, on the ninth day of Ab, the month of Ab. It's a reminder, a continual reminder 
that God is just and sin has horrific consequences when we disobey God. They read it annually. For the Christian, though, suffering is a test. Suffering is often a test. All of us will find it very easy to trust God when things are good. It's very difficult to trust God despite your circumstances. Suffering reminds us that we are not good people who often do bad things. Suffering reminds especially the unbeliever that we are rebels who need to lay down our arms. All too often we regard God as an airman regards a parachute or as somebody on the side of the road regards his spare tire in his trunk. God is there for emergencies only. And so that's when we go to him. It's interesting, Psalm 34 verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, put it this way. It is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down beneath us. All of us over the age of 50 have been there. Grace shows us that God not only cares about our suffering, but he fully entered into it. The suffering of Christ on the cross for us is Jesus' answer to the problem of evil, the problem of evil that we all face. When Jesus suffered for, for us at the very same time, He gave suffering a reason. Tim Keller put it this way. He said at the cross that evil was turned back on itself. Evil was curved in on itself. John Calvin put it this way. On the cross, destruction was destroyed. Torment was tormented. Damnation was damned by the person of Christ. Death was finally dead. And mortality was made immortal. Everything that Satan threw at Jesus was thrown right back to him, only in a way that was definitive, forever, and annihilated. And it is only in the resurrection, and it is only because of the resurrection that Christians can face suffering with a hope that is unmatched from anything else that this world has to offer. Jesus suffered to the glory of God, and so can we, because even in the midst of suffering, we see the gracious hand of God upon us. No matter how dark it gets and no matter how life throws curve after curve in our way, the grace and the loving kindness of God, it is new every single morning. There are blessings we experience in this life that we will never be able to fully grasp and we will never be able to put into words. And one of the biggest blessings that we all have is the blessing of life and life eternal. That is something that suffering cannot take away from us. And if we are gonna be those who overcome pain and loss and suffering in a way that glorifies God all the time, no matter what, we will look to hope in the person of Jesus who is resurrected and the resurrection of the saints to come. And it's there where we'll finish and pray. All right. Father in heaven, It's hard for me to stand up here and and do a sermon on suffering as a guy who hasn't really suffered much. Um, We do pray for endurance, we pray pray for hope, we pray for uh, proven character in the midst of suffering. We know that you often use it for a test to help these circumstances in all of our lives, to bring us to an end of ourselves and a desire to save ourselves. 
be our own savior. Lord, we are completely dependent upon you and you only for everything, every breath, every step, every day. And it is there when we wake up in the morning that we see that your mercies are new every single morning. Father, I pray that TBC would be a a church that holds tightly to hope in the person of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the darkest days that are ahead of us. We pray that you would haste the day of your return when our faith will be sight and suffering will be no more. It's in the name of your son that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.